As you know, in the month of uh, February, we've been talking about a little book. In fact, we've been going through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, way over in the Old Testament, right past the books of the law. Uh, you go through Genesis, Ex, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and then you come to Joshua and Judges. And in fact, the setting for this particular book is uh, during the time of the Judges in Israel. It's a little bitty book that only has four chapters, and that's why we're taking a chapter per Sunday. It's the book of Ruth, and we've been talking to you about that for the last uh, couple of weeks, and this is the third week, so we're going to deal with chapter three today in uh, the book of Ruth, and uh, that chapter is referred to as the uh, chapter that deals with a planned marriage, and we're going to talk about that planned marriage today. For the benefit of those who have not been here for the last couple of weeks, let me just quickly bring you up to date. You can uh, easily go to your Bible and read um, uh, the first couple of chapters that you've missed. Um, I hope you won't do it in the next few minutes, but after you get home today, you can go back and get that. It all starts off with a, a family, uh, a man named Imelech, uh, Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, Milon and Kilion. They lived in Bethlehem, Judah. And uh, it just so happens, and this seems like a paradoxical statement, but the Bible says there was a famine in Bethlehem, Judah. And the reason that sounds like a paradoxical statement because Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And to say that there is a famine in the house of bread seems very strange, and yet it happened. And we understand why as we've studied the Word. Well, instead of staying in Bethlehem, Judah, and trying to be a part of the solution and really praying for God to give revival, this family decided that the grass must be greener on the other side. And they heard about a land that was um, far away but near enough that they could get to, a land called Moab. And they, f they heard that the economy over Moab was doing real good. So they left Bethlehem, Judah, and went to Moab. They did not intend to stay there forever. They, the Bible said they were sojourning there. That literally meant that they went there for a while and they were planning to come back as soon as things got better in Bethlehem. What they were not counting on was tragedy in this beautiful love story. This is a love story, by the way. Um, and tragedy struck. Elimelech died there. And so now Naomi is left without a husband and she's got two boys to finish raising. Well, uh, she manages to do that. If you fast forward for 10 years, both of the boys are grown. They get married. One of them marries a lady named Orpha, and the other marries a girl named Ruth. And uh, then tragedy struck again, and both of these boys also died. So now in the story, you have Naomi, who is a widow, who has now not only lost her husband, but has lost her two sons. And so she decides to go back home to Bethlehem, Judah. As she starts for home, her two daughters-in-law follow her. She stops along the way and prevails upon them to go back home. She said, you don't understand. You'll be foreigners in Bethlehem. You don't understand our culture. In our culture, if, you, if your husband dies, then your brother is to marry you so that can keep the inheritance uh, for the family line. 
and you don't have, I don't have another son, so there is no other brother for you to marry. And, and it would be very difficult. She said, please go home to your mother and dad and uh, let them take care of you. And so Orpha kisses her by and goes back home. But Ruth says, I'm not leaving you. I'm going with you. Wherever you go, that's where I'm going to go. Wherever you stay, that's where I'm going to stay. And uh, your people will become my people, and your God will become my God. And um, she said, nothing but death will separate between you and me. And so they go back to Bethlehem, Judah. Naomi, who left home uh, full, returns empty. That's the term that the Scripture uses. I went away full. I've come back empty. She said, don't even call me Naomi anymore, which is a pleasant name. She said, call me bitterness, a word for, Hebrew word for bitterness. Just, just call me that. And, uh, and, and so they're, they settle down there and they're trying to make a living. Chapter 2 that we dealt with last Sunday deals with um, uh, Ruth becoming a gleaner. Ruth said, I'm not going to sit here and depend on the sympathy of other people to take care of us. I'm strong and able to work, and I'm going to work. And, of course, the only kind of job she could find was being a gleaner in the fields. Way back in Leviticus chapter 19, God had provided for people who ran on hard times in Israel by telling the farmers when they harvested their land not to, not to go all the way to the corner and back, but, but to round off all of the corners and leave those plots of ground on all four corners of their farm so that people who were having a hard time surviving could come and glean. They could pick up what was left over, and they would at least have food to eat. And so uh, Ruth becomes a gleaner in the field. It just so happened as she's gleaning that she moves over into the field of Boaz. And so we introduced Boaz to you last week. As, and he is a very kind man, and he's very good to her. He sees her in his field gleaning, and he inquires about her and finds out a little history and a little background. And he knows what it's like to, um, to, 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 to be raised in, 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 in a, a cultural divide because his mother, <laughs> remember his mother? His mother was Rahab that, um, that was in Jericho that became an Israelite after the the walls of Jericho fell. So she had, he had grown up in a home where his mother was a foreigner. She looked a little bit different. She, her ways were a little bit different. So he knew that. He had compassion on Ruth and reached out to her and was very kind to her. And we left that at the end last week, and we're going to pick up this morning in chapter 3. I'm going to read the first five verses to you here. Um, this plan to marriage is the title of this particular chapter. And this first point is Naomi's instruction. Her mother-in-law, Ruth's mother-in-law, gives her some instruction. Listen to it, if you will. One day her mother-in-law, Naomi, said to Ruth, my dear daughter, isn't it about time I arranged a good home for you so that you can have a happy life? And isn't Boaz one of our close relatives, the one whose young women you've been working? Maybe it's time to make our move. Tonight's the night of Boaz barley harvest at the threshing floor. Take a bath, put on some perfume, get all dressed up, and go to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you're there until the party's well underway and he's had plenty of food and drink. When you see him slipping off to sleep, watch where he lies down and then go there. 
lie at his feet to let him know that you're available to him for marriage. Then wait and see what he says. He'll tell you what to do. Ruth said, if you say so, I'll do it just as you've told me. Now, here's some points of interest from these first five verses. I want you to notice the wisdom of Naomi. Naomi is the mother-in-law, remember. She is older, and she has wisdom to share with her daughter-in-law. I think it's so wonderful when, when young people are willing to listen to and glean from the experience and the wisdom of older people. It's wonderful when God provides somebody for you in the body of Christ that become, can become a spiritual dad or spiritual mom or like an older sister or brother in the faith that can help you to be able to gain from their own experience. And that's what's happening here. Second thing I want you to notice is that Naomi gives further identification of this Boaz. Remember, we introduced Boaz to you last week, but he's not just a benevolent farmer. Naomi says, look, this Boaz is actually a close relative of ours. In fact, look at it in the Scripture. And isn't Boaz our close relative, the one with whose women you've been working in other words, she's been gleaning in the field. Boaz was good to her. He said, don't just act like a gleaner. He said, you just act like one of the women that work on my farms. And, and when break time comes, you take a break with them. And when they go to the well for water, you go to the well for water as well. And, and you just act like you're one of the hired servants here. And, and she had been doing that for quite some time. The next thing I want you to notice here is that timing is so important. And boy, do we all have lessons to learn here in our spiritual life about the timing of the Lord. Has anybody in the house besides me ever missed God's timing? <laughs> got confused about God's timing? Maybe got ahead of God's timing? I, I've, I've shared the story many times when God showed me this building on the interstate way back in the early 80s. I had a vision of this, saw it. And uh, knew it was from God, knew that we were supposed to have it. And I got up looking for it. And I couldn't find this building. And so I tried with all that was in me to get our church. And they agree, we tried to. We tried to buy a building that looked like it at Washington Road at I-20. And it fell through. And the reason it fell through is because that wasn't God's plan. And the reason I couldn't find this building at that time is because this building hadn't been built yet. It took, me, it took me some experience in life to learn that God's timing is not always our kind of timing. God looks at time differently than we do. You'll receive something from God, and, and here's what we all do. We feel like when God gives you something, boy, that must be for tomorrow, next day, or next week at the latest. Let's get up and go for it. Not realizing that some, there may be a time in between. Between God. I learned this about visions way back in those days. I learned that when God gives a vision, a vision from God, sometimes there is the death of that vision and then the resurrection of that vision. And the reason for that is so that God can get all the glory. God gave me the vision of this place and then he let it die and it liked to kill me. 
But when God resurrected it, I don't have any problem when somebody, we had some ministers last week that wanted to come by and look at the building, see how you can take a, a, a big warehouse and turn it into a worship center. We have that a lot of times. People will come and look at the building. I don't have any problem telling anybody that everything you see here, God did it. <laughs> I didn't do it. See, he gets the glory. Amen. I tried mine and mine failed, but God does not fail. So, so this is, God did it. If you want to study a, a, a character in the Bible that exemplifies this, study the life of Joseph. Man, God gave that guy a vision when he was young, but it was years before that vision came to pass. In fact, every step he took after that vision or that dream was down. He went down to the pit. He went down to Potiphar's house. He went down to prison. It was just down, down, down. His life was falling apart. Years were going by, decade, and, 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 and added to that. And it, it's just worse and worse and worse until suddenly God shows up and raises him up and makes him prime minister. Wow. But timing is so important in the plans of God. So don't get frustrated if, if things are not working out like you think they should when you think they should. You may not be in sync with God's timing. And Naomi understood that. That's why Naomi said, maybe it's time to make our move. Tonight is the night that Boaz barley harvest at the threshing floor. God's timing. She recognized it. She was, she was in tune enough to, this is it. This is the time. And so she, she struck while the iron was hot, so to speak. Next thing that I see in this is that preparation is vitally important. She not only said to Ruth, it's time. She said, now get ready. There's some preparation needs to be done. Listen, anytime God is revealing to you his destiny, you need to be preparing for that. And Ruth did not jump up and say, well, glory, tonight's the night. I'm going to put on my ragged blue jeans, my sweatshirt, and I'm going to run down there and see if I can't impress old Boaz. No, 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 no. Naomi said, wait a minute, darling. Prepare. Take a bath, put on some perfume, get all dressed up, put on your best. You know, there, there are several applications and implications in this book of Ruth that, that can be seen in our life here. For example, Boaz, our kinsman redeemer, we'll see in next Sunday's lesson, uh, it represents Jesus Christ. And, 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 and we could be the, the, the Ruth in this story that's, 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 we need to be prepared. Listen, church, our Lord and Savior is about to make his move, and we as a church need to be prepared for that move. Amen? We don't need to be sloughing off and slacking off and, and lousing, lousing around. We need to be ready, prepared. He's coming back for a church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He's coming back for a bride that has prepared herself. <laughs> Preparation is so vitally important. And then there's a plan of action. You know, some people just sit around waiting for God to do something. Well, God's already done something. Get in here and find out what he's said, what he's done. Get in step with God. There's a plan of action here. Remember I read a while ago, he said, she said, 
but don't let him know that you're there until the party's well underway and he's had plenty of food and drink. When you see him slipping off to sleep, watch where he lies down and then go there. Lie at his feet and let him know that you're available to him for marriage. Then wait and see what he says. He'll tell you what to do. Now, there's a lot of Eastern culture involved here that I, that I want to address. I don't want you to get the wrong idea about this. And, and by the way, uh, Ruth, I'm sure, struggled with these instructions herself. Because, see, th- she didn't grow up in this culture. This is not the way that you got a man in Moab. This is totally different. And, and, and so she's, she's having to submit and surrender to the instruction of her mother-in-law. Because this, this, is, this is new territory for her. She, she doesn't understand all of this. What's this stuff about lying at his feet and, and all of that? Well, now, I don't want you to think that when it says that Boaz had eaten and, and drunk, that, that, he, that that meant that he got drunk. No, 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 no. She, it means that they had a festive occasion at the barley harvest. And he had been there fellowshipping that evening with an evening meal. And so he's eaten till he's full. He's drunk what they, whatever they were serving with the meal. And he's full and he's satisfied. And then he goes off to find a place. He's going to spend the night at the harvest. Now, the reason for that was that many times marauders would come in at barley harvest time and steal the harvest. And so the owners slept with the harvest at the threshing floor to make sure nobody stole it. They would kind of post themselves out around so that they could alert one another and come to the defense of their, uh, their, their uh, festival um, and their harvest in case somebody tried to steal it. And so Boaz finds a place at, out at kind of outlying area there behind a, a big uh, thing of barley. And that's where he made his bed and went to sleep. And she followed this instruction to the letter. She, she slipped up to him after he'd gone to sleep, and she lay at his feet. Now, please don't get the idea that there's anything in this story that is salacious in any way. She's not trying to seduce him. Uh, she's not doing anything inappropriate. You see, in that Eastern culture, when you placed yourself at the feet of someone, you were saying to them, I am willing to serve you. I am submitted to you. And that's, that's all that was involved in this when Ruth goes and lays down at his feet. Well, let's look at Ruth's obedience. I'll read verses 6 to 13. She went down to the threshing floor, and her mother put her mother-in-law's plan to action. Boaz had a good time eating and drinking his fill, and he felt great. Then he went off to get some sleep, lying down at the end of a stack of barley. Ruth quietly followed. She laid down to signal her availability for marriage. In the middle of the night, the man was suddenly startled and set up. Surprise! This woman asleep at his feet. He said, and who are you? She said, I am Ruth, your maiden. Take me under your protecting wings. You're my close relative, you know, in the circle of covenant redeemers. You do have the right to marry me. 
He said, God bless you, my dear daughter. What a splendid expression of love. And when you could have had your pick of any of the young men around, and now, my dear daughter, don't you worry about a thing. I'll do all you could want or ask. Everybody in town knows what a courageous woman you are, a real prize. You're right, I am a close relative to you, but there is one even closer than I am. So stay the rest of the night. In the morning, if he wants to exercise his customary rights and responsibilities as the closest relative redeemer, he'll have his chance. But if he isn't interested, as God lives, I will do it. Now go back to sleep until morning. Wow. I want you to notice that Ruth is willing to follow the instructions of an older, wiser woman. She really is becoming very vulnerable here. But she's listening to, she's obeying and following the instructions of an older woman. And then I love this. I, I, I just see funny things in the Bible all the time. Here's, here's old Boaz. He's been asleep for a while. I don't know what woke him up. I don't know whether Ruth went to sleep and maybe when she rolled over or whatever, maybe she bumped his, I don't know what, but something startled him and he sat straight up in the bed and the Bible said, surprise. I said, surprise, surprise, surprise. <laughs> there's, there's a woman laying at his feet. And he, of course, asked the question, who are you? That's his reaction. And then Ruth responds. She said, and we read it a while ago. Let me read it again. I am Ruth, your maiden. Take me under your protecting wing. You are my close relative, you know, in the circle of covenant redeemers. You do have the right to marry me. And then Boaz responds to her proposal. He, he is surprised. But I think the surprise is more than just the fact that there's a woman laying at his feet in the middle of the night that he didn't know about. I think he is surprised that this young woman would be interested in him enough to be willing to marry him. He even said about her, he said, we all know that you could have had your pick of any of the young men that you wanted. That indicates to me she must have been a pretty nice-looking young lady for him to have made that kind of statement. You, you, could, have, you could have had your pick if you wanted to. If, that, if you'd have wanted to just chase after a man for the sake of getting a man, you, you could have gotten a, a good-looking young man. And so even though there has been indications, as we saw last week, she, she told him that, you know, that he had touched her heart. And, and, and we saw some initial beginnings of, of, of what could be on both sides, some interest. But I think Boaz was still probably arguing with himself and saying, no, that young girl wouldn't be interested in me. And so he is surprised that she is in fact interested in him and willing to marry him. And third and final point that I want to make this morning Let's read the rest of the chapter, 14 to 18. Ruth slept at his feet until dawn, but she got up while it was dark, still dark and wouldn't be recognized. Then Boaz said to himself, no one must know that Ruth came to the threshing floor. So Boaz said, bring the shawl you're wearing and spread it out. She spread it out 
And he poured, a full, poured it full of barley, six measures, and put it on her shoulders. Then she went back to town. When she came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked her, And how did things go, my dear daughter? Ruth told her everything that the man had done for her, adding, and he gave me all of this barley besides, six quarts. Remember last week I told you five quarts was a day's wages. He blessed her abundantly. He told me, you can't go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Naomi said, sit back and relax, my dear daughter, until we find out how things turn out. That man isn't going to fool around. Mark my words, he's going to get everything wrapped up today. <laughs> Isn't that great? Notice this. Ruth left early in the morning to go back to her mother-in-law. And Boaz sends her home with what, after she thrust it out, it was six measures, big thing, but when she thrust it out, it's six quarts of, uh, of barley. And then she and Ruth had this wonderful conversation. Wouldn't you like to have been a fly on the wall and, and hear them talking and see how excited they must? You know how, you know how women are when they get together, especially if they're talking about romance and trying to help get somebody connected. You know how it is. You ladies all work together. You, you help one another. And, 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 and so they're, they're having one of those, I mean, just, just normal life conversation. But they're amazed at seeing what God is doing. I, I want to conclude with this. I think it's a great tribute to the relationship between Naomi and Ruth that, that they're able to, to have this. And, and she's able to say, and I read it to you a while ago from the message. Let me read it from the New King James. She said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how this matter will, tear, will turn out. Sit still. Just wait. And the relationship between the two of them are such that Ruth, again, is willing to listen and obey the instruction of her mother-in-law. You know, sometimes we run ahead of God's will. Sometimes we fall behind God's will. Sometimes we veer off to the right or to the left of God's will. I told you a while ago, timing is so important. But now we've reached a point where Naomi has recognized the timing. Naomi has given the instructions and Ruth has obeyed. They've carried out the plan. They've done all that they can do. And now it's time for patience. It's time to sit back and wait. Sit still until we see how this matter is going to turn out. Folks, can I say to you this morning that that's one of the hardest things that we have in our Christian experience is the, one of the hardest things we have to do is to learn when to sit back and wait on God. When, when we've done all that we can do and that we're willing to rest in the Lord. And that's, that's what God wants us to do you know, in the old covenant, you worked for rest. You worked six days and you rested on the seventh day. Under the new covenant, we worship the Lord on the first day of the week. We begin. You see, Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our rest. And we began. This is the first day of the week. We, we work from rest. We don't work to rest. We work from rest. 
This should be your day of rest. This should be your Sabbath. This should be the day that you honor and praise the Lord Jesus and cast all your cares on him and then just sit back and rest in his mercy and his grace and his love, knowing that he is working in your behalf to do all things. All things work together for good to them that love God and to those that are called according to his purpose. We're supposed to rest in the Lord. And we have a hard time doing it. And I'm pointing out at every one of you this morning, you have a hard time doing it. But I got three fingers here pointing back at me saying, Preacher, you have a hard time doing it. And I'll admit that we do, but that's what we're supposed to do according to the Word of God. We're supposed to rest in Him. Somebody give Him praise. Amen. Let me read you a familiar passage. It's in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. If your work for the Lord this morning is not easy, and if your burden is not light, then you need to check your position in the yoke. The only thing I can tell you is if you're yoked up with Jesus, and you're sweating it, and you're frustrated, and you're full of anxiety, and you're full of fear, and you're smarting under the load, and you're you're getting blisters, then either you're trying to pull ahead or you're dragging behind or you're trying to pull off to the left or to the right. But if you're in the yoke with Jesus, he's the one that's pulling the load. And if you'll just stay in perfect step with him, his yoke is easy. His burden is light. Amen? And we're supposed to rest in that. We're supposed to rest in that. So I want to tell you this morning, if if you're struggling in this area of anxiety and frustration and, and it leads to fear and fear has torment, then I I want to encourage you to just find rest in the Lord. I want to encourage you to take the words of Naomi from the end of this third chapter of the day and say, just just sit still, wait on the Lord. Maybe you're trying to force something to happen before the timing is right. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're trying to run ahead of God and you're pulling the yoke and he's, he's over here pulling it back. Or, or maybe you're dragging behind. You're not willing to step out in faith with him and, and he's marching on. But, but if you get yoked up with Jesus and you get in step with Jesus, working for the Lord will be a joy and working for the Lord will be a delight and working for the Lord will be a pleasure and working for the Lord, I don't, that doesn't mean that there won't be any trials or tribulations or troubles. It don't mean that you won't go through some tar- tough times. And you may even walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but his rod and staff will comfort you. Amen. You say, well, preacher, I'm in a storm. And you may be in the toughest storm of your life. So were the disciples. The storm was so great that experienced mariners and fishermen were afraid. 
But guess where Jesus was? Asleep in the boat. We need to follow Jesus, not the disciples. Amen? Amen. Praise God. What the disciples should have done instead of running down there and grabbing Jesus and shaking him and saying, oh, don't you care that we're about to perish? They should have gone down there and got him a pillar and stretched out beside him and say, praise God. We're going to ride this old storm out. As long as Jesus is on the boat, you're going to get to the other side. It doesn't matter how... It doesn't matter how the wind's blowing or the waves are rolling. Amen. If Jesus is on board, you're going to get, you might as well rest. But the devil doesn't want you to rest. He wants to torment your mind. He wants to torment you and, and get you so anxious that you can't. He wants to get you full of ulcers and, and he wants you to have a nervous breakdown. And see, if the devil can't get you to go out into open sin, then what he'll try to do is frustrate you so in life until he can break down your health and, and bring you down other ways. But listen this morning, Jesus is our Sabbath. Jesus is our liberty. Jesus is our victory. Jesus is our rest. We need to rest in the Lord. You say, but preacher, I don't, you just don't understand what I'm going through. You don't understand what I've been through. I don't, but he does. And I can promise you, no matter how difficult this storm, you will get to the other side. And there's victory on the other side in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Stand with me, if you will, please. I just have a feeling that there's probably some folks here today that you've prayed about some things and prayed about them until you've become discouraged and you've stopped praying about some things. You've had visions and dreams and you felt God leading you and things have taken a detour and you've gotten off track and you've given up on those things. I want to tell you this morning, cast your cares on the Lord. And rest in him. He's able to get this boat back in line. And get you back in the center of his will. And bring you to your destiny. He's able to do it. He will do it. Just the other night, Faye and I were sharing with, with Brother Eddie and Sister Carolyn. Close friends of ours. They have been for many, many, many years. And they got to bringing up some names from way back in the old days. And, and they brought up the name of Sib Cobb. And uh, I doubt there's anybody here that still remembers Sib. But before Sib, his mother was one of the great prayer warriors. Before we even came, we're talking way back in the 50s and 60s in Crawford Avenue. Sister Cobb was one of the old prayer warriors, mighty woman of God. But her son Sib went out into sin, really got into bondage. The devil just tormented his life. And Sister Cobb would pray for that boy and pray for that boy. And when prayer requests were given at church, she would also always say, please pray for Sib. She prayed for Sib for years. And Sib just looked like it got further and further and further into the bondage of sin. Became an alcoholic. and Life just went terrible. Sister Cobb died and went on home to glory.
She didn't live to see Sib change. Sib got worse and worse. In fact, Sib hit a point of despair in his life so great that one night he took a revolver and he put it in the roof of his mouth and he pulled the trigger and it fired and he blew part of his face. In fact, the doctors were absolutely astounded that the man lived. They said how that bullet somehow went up through his mouth and out the top of his head without, without destroying his brain or killing him. They, they, they just they couldn't explain it. Of course, we can explain it. Sister Cobb prayed for Sim. After many, many, many surgeries and reconstruction, and it was a long, drawn-out process, but they did a marvelous job putting Sib's face back together again. And Sib came to church one Sunday morning, just out of the clear blue. I remember it like it was yesterday. He sat on this side along about this, about the place where Brother George would be or is this morning, right in that area. And I preached, and I mean the instant that I gave the altar call, he came running to that altar, fell on his face, Gave his heart to Jesus. The Lord set him free from his alcohol addiction. God cleaned his life up. And for many years he lived and was faithful to our church. and became a wonderful part of our church. I preached his funeral when he went home to be with the Lord. I, I went to see Sib after he got saved. And I said, Brother Sib, I'm curious what was it that I said in the message Sunday morning that reached your heart? What, what was it? What point? And he said, preacher, I'll be honest with you. I didn't hear a word you said. <laughs> I said, well, Brother Sib, what, was it the song that we sang at the invitation? He said, preacher, I don't have a clue what they sang. I said, well, Sib, what was it? He said, I was standing there while we were singing and before I sat down. And then for the rest of the service, he said, all I could hear was my mother praying for me. And he said, I sat there on pins and needles saying to myself, if that preacher will ever shut up, I'm going to go to the altar and <laughs> give my heart to Jesus. What if Sister Dodd had, what if Sister Cobb had, had given up? What if, what if Sister Cobb had said, doesn't look like there's any use, but she was still praying for Sib on her deathbed, and God heard her prayers. That's why a revolver, an attempt at suicide, couldn't take his life, because God wouldn't let him die till the Holy Spirit finished the work in his life. Amen. Amen. What I'm trying to tell you this morning is you can release those troubles that you're dealing with to the Lord. You can cast those cares on Jesus and you can find rest in the Lord. He can take care of them. He can take care of them. Some of you are losing sleep. I don't know why God's up all night. 
He'll take care of it. You don't have to lose sleep over it. Just find your rest in him. Declare him to be your rest. Claim it. That's something that's ours as children of God. It's part of our heritage. It's part of our inheritance. It's part of our covenant. Jesus is with us and promised never to leave us nor forsake us. We can trust him. He'll get us through. Praise the Lord. While heads are bowed, the altars are open. I want the prayer team to come quickly. Any staff or board members or small group leaders that will help us this morning come and join us at the altar and let's let's provide a place where people can pray and people to pray with them. I don't know what you need today. If you're unsaved, I challenge you to come give your heart to Jesus. If you're away from God, I would encourage you to come on home. And I believe there's a whole big number of you standing here this morning that the Holy Spirit's dealing with your heart about some of the troubles and cares and burdens that you're struggling with right now that God just wants you to release. He wants you to turn loose. And he wants you to rest in him. Did you know that resting in Jesus is an act of faith that he will take care of it? Maybe you need help today. The altar's open. If you want somebody to pray with you, for you, we're here. If you just want to find a place, and just you and God. But come on, the altar's open. God bless you as you respond.